0: In a world of EMS podcasters, EMS Office Hours is the only live podcast bringing you the latest topics and opinions in EMS. Turn down your scanner and turn up your speakers as we join Jim Hoffman and Josh Knapp on their latest EMS podcasting journey.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to EMS Office Hours. I am Jim Hoffman.
0: And I'm Dave Brenner.
1: And we might have uh, Josh joining us. Dave, I do not see him in the queue or anything yet, but we shall see. Um, Maybe he shows up and we can talk. But like you said, I think he's been very uh, passionate about (laughs) other endeavors. So... Uh, We shall see if he pops in. So it would be nice to find the show in. So, guys, you're listening to the show, you're watching the show, be sure you go to com. You can see previous episodes there. And do me a favor real quick. Just hit the like button. Let me know that you guys are watching and that you're in the feed. And then then if you comment and and whatnot, if you're on Facebook, I can see the comment and kind of mention whatever it is that you're saying as we go. So today, Dave, something, I wanted to do this last week. We couldn't do the show because I got uh, a little bit of a family issue happening, but I want to jump on today and and kind of revisit this because I think it's important to point this out. And while this is something that is um, talking about specifically New York City and FDNY and their guideline for this. I think this is something that a lot of uh, agencies throughout the country are starting to struggle with, and that is people calling 911 to get a COVID test to be seen for non-emergent issues because they think they might have COVID because they have some other sign or symptom and they might not be You know, very symptomatic or having an emergent issue with potentially having COVID, even if they do, and the FDNY put out a policy about transporting patients um, to the hospital of their choice. In the past, Dave, as you know, you know most of the time wherever the patient wanted to go, you pretty much took them there within reason, and even if it was out of that they have what they call a 10-minute rule in New York City, which is 10 minutes beyond the closest facility for that patient. So it could be a 15-minute drive, even a 20-minute drive, um, and you'd have to get permission from the online medical control to transport them to a further hospital. But this protocol, this guideline, because of the overwhelming uh, call volume and and shortage I think of, of providers that are out there uh, is now they are determining the um, hospital based on what the computer tells them. So whatever the facility is, is being determined by the computer when they get on scene and that's the hospital that's supposed to be taking the patient to. And uh, reading from the protocol, it, it says that the patient refuses transport from the computer, the recommended facility, It's and the patient's qualified to refuse medical assistance, the RMA, and they have full deci- decisional capacity, then the RMA should be secured. Unless they're a pediatric patient, then you have yeah. to have a. Then a, you a can get it running. from
0: their parent, right?
1: Right. Um, and then, you know, of course, the crew is going to document appropriately what the capacity is and, and that they understand the risk, blah, 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 blah. Um, Now, there is the end of this where it says that if the patient is still insisting on transport and you can't convince them to be transported to the closest facility and yet they still refuse to do the RMA and maybe get to the hospital on their own, um, then the crew is supposed to contact medical control for a transport decision. I haven't seen anything in comment threads and stuff like that, Dave where they are, uh, you know, some experiences from crews that actually, uh, you know, did the refusal and then called medical control and then the patient was able to go where they wanted. So I'm not sure if, if it's just some kind of a verbiage of this policy getting put out and it doesn't really matter anyway because when the patient insists on going where they want to go, and you call medical control, or medical control. Yeah, go ahead, take them where they want to go. You know,
0: yeah. I've I had that. I
1: don't. I don't know if you've had that, Dave. But I've had that in the past where the patient wanted to go to a further hospital, and I stop my feet and I tell, them, "No, you got to go to a closest hospital. You really need to go to, to a hospital closer. So your doctor's not waiting for you at the ER." Blah blah blah. <laughs> and then I call the doctor, and the doctor goes, "Yeah, go take them."
0: Well, yeah. You know? So. There, there are certainly two issues, at least two issues with this. You know what? May, maybe we can get resolution to the experience if we have any listeners out there who are who are in the uh, the Finney or the volunteer hospitals within New York City who can tell us, hey, I just did this yesterday. This is what happened when right. I had medical control.
1: Yeah, that I haven't heard awesome. of anything. Yeah, I and, haven't heard and,
0: anything on that. Yeah, one of our one of our listeners is telling us it's because there's a shortage of EMS crews. And certainly we know that. We know that that there's a shortage of EMS crews. Yeah. And we also know, we also know that it's inappropriate to call an ambulance just to take you to the hospital to get tested. Listen, we take sick people with COVID to the hospital all the time because they're sick, sick, sick. Right. Um, and and yet we find a lot of other people who are, some of them are really sick and they drive themselves to a dock in the box, you know, to one, one of oh. the uh, the non, to an urgent care facility.
1: Right. Yeah, You
0: know, and they're able to do that. And then from there, the urgent care facility calls us to take them to the hospital or they could have gone to the hospital directly on their own and chose Should not have. to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, so we in these times where there is a shortage of 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 resources uh, and that time counts because even with the resources we have you know if somebody wants to go to a further hospital you know 10 minutes is 10 extra minutes you could have been ready for another patient a a really sick patient and and it's 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 not gonna the system is down it's it's a bad time made worse by people abuse it i i i want to give you just one of our recent experiences, the, um, we have, we have an intermediate care facility for people with disabilities and they reside there, they reside there. And, uh, we get a call, you know, one, one of our providers says to us, um, we got a call and the documentation was interesting. It said that the, a worker there felt that they were exposed and it is the policy of their agency, I'm, I'm not going to name their agency, um, that if exposed, they have to call 911 and get a, a medical transport to a hospital to get tested. Now, mm-hmm. from my point of view, I, w- I would love to meet with the, uh, the administrator mm-hmm. who made that a rule. Uh, yeah. it is, it is, it's heinous. It's a complete yeah. disregard for what emergencies are all about. It is it's it's abuse, and you know in other places where they charge for for medical transports, they might welcome a call like that, but in my system, my system, which is predominantly volunteer, even if we have paid staff, we don't charge anybody for it. We just charge the tax base for it because Mm -hmm. nothing happens without money. Uh, It's abuse. Listen, I, I listen. If if this is what happened, you got to, you got exposed. I tell you what to do if, if if you believe you need an ambulance. Call a paid ambulance. Yeah. Call a paid ambulance. They'll get there. They don't have to be there in seven minutes. They can be there in a half hour. You got exposed. What do you think is gonna happen in the next 20 minutes?
1: Yeah. And I wondered when when that happens too, like do, do these ambulances end up responding to a call like at that lights and sirens? not knowing what's really waiting for them depending upon what information is given when the call comes in, you know,
0: now, now you're, you're going down another rabbit hole. It's the emergency medical dispatch rabbit hole, um, which I would love to talk about perhaps in another, another episode of us. Uh, But uh, part, part of what happens with emergency medical dispatch is garbage in garbage out. If the, if the patients lie to us, if the caller lies to us, you know, yeah. you know, some of them were told to say they have chest pain because you'll get a faster response. Yeah. Wow. Now, oh, I, saw, wow. I,
1: I, I saw a lot of uh, comments when this policy was first put out. Apparently, there was something like this or si- similar to this when COVID was at its height. You know, back when they were getting like 6,000 calls a day, you know, um, they put something like this out uh, to try the to... The state re- put it out. Yeah. So, so now this is kind of being reintroduced because of, you know, uh, the new variant and the, the, the people getting getting sick, easily sicker with it and then freaking out because they, you know, have some symptoms and they want to go to the hospital. Um, in addition to this, I, I think that uh, New York City, the, the fire department is trying to figure a way to like you had mentioned, right, the, 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 that 10 minute rule, that's 10 minutes of getting the ambulance It could be turned around a little quicker to get back in service for a, a real emergency, a true emergency that might be out there. Um, and now I saw a, a, a guideline where they're going to have some kind of an algorithm for to help with the uh, patient loading at the hospitals. Have you seen that? Well, they're talking they're, they're, about the triage. Matter. What's that?
0: <laughs> they're going to do triage.
1: Well, the, what they're trying to do is they say, okay, the algorithms has something going on where one hospital has been getting a lot of patients transported to it. So now the, the computer is going to recommend other hospitals who have not been having a lot of patients transported to them, even if it's not the closest facility it's the closest facility that has a less of a patient load.
0: Like what we so, do in an MCI. You can't bring yeah. everybody to the closest. Right, right. That'll bring us to our next topic. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but that's, uh, yeah, that's it, something. It, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes And if you think about it as we have spreader events or we have communities where there's a lower, a lower level of immunity or a higher level of infection, it doesn't make sense. To take everybody to that one, uh, to that one facility, and uh, yeah. of course, by by moving them to places where they have a lower level of infection, we bring the people who are infected to that area too.
1: So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. You know, a lot of the comments that I've seen on this, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, is, is it's cruel to do this. That patients have a right to go where they want. That their um, definitive care is that the hospital, the choice, that's where the doctors are. That's where they've had past surgeries. That's where they've had, you know, whatever the case may be. And that's the argument of, well, we should do what the patient wants. We shouldn't be dictating to them where they go. And also the that element of don't bring patients to the crappy, closer hospital if they want to go to the better hospital where they are usually seen. We all know that certain hospitals that have certain reputations that – the care in the emergency room or even on the floors are, are less than optimal. And then, you know, nobody wants to go there. Right. So that's another element of, of a lot of the comments that I've seen with this is the people saying, I would never take, I wouldn't take my worst enemy to my closest hospital. So if that's what comes up, I'm not going, you know, and the patient wants to go someplace else, I'm going to abide by what the patient wants. So that's a, that's another slippery slope. I think too, with this is, you know, I guess, you know, being well, sort of the judge of what a hospital capabilities is in their, their customer service. And the bottom is the bottom line on it when it comes to that.
0: And you can, you can run into a little bit of a problem as a provider uh, when you're dealing with people who want to go somewhere different during a stroke, a STEMI or trauma. And we actually have response protocols about going to the nearest appropriate facility. Right. You, right. It, it's I'm not saying that you never go around it. There are, because if you're going to argue with the patient for 10 minutes and get on the, get on the phone with medical control, you could have been at the other hospital already most of the time.
1: Right. I yeah. will. I found, provo- I, I, I found that to be the, the better, the better path over time was like you said, why am I arguing? I, I state the case to the patient and if they're still insistent, I get on the phone and I hand it off to the doc and let the doc make the decision. Yeah.
0: And they're going to you tell know. you to take them where they want to go.
1: Pretty much. I don't think I've ever had a doctor ref- tell me not to not to do it, unless the patient was like, you know, in some sort of extremis or something like that. And, and I right. just needed to, you know, kind of cover my ass by calling the doctor to make sure that everybody was aware that I was going to not listen to the family of the patient because it was in the interest of the patient's outcome. Yes. You know? Yes. So – and, yeah, just uh, some, I just like you said, I, I, I'm hoping people listening, if uh, if you listen now, listening live, and you're listening to the the recorded version of this, go ahead and leave us a quick comment on that in the notes. If you have any recent experiences with this policy, if you're from New York or if you're not from New York and you another another you know organization, another state or whatever, let us know what you guys are doing there to alleviate similar issues with the the higher call volume and, and people that are looking to go to the ER to get tested because they don't want to wait on some hour long line to be tested, to be told they're sick. They're going to
0: go to the ER and wait there with a lot right. of other sick people.
1: Exactly. It's,
0: you know, exactly. and maybe they, yeah. you know, in emergencies, they can set it up so that you can go to non article 28 facilities. Maybe we can have, you know, some test sites that people call in ambulances that are, you know, in yeah. trailers. In trailers, but you know, parked by the communities to to just to relieve that load.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean I think there's other ways to handle it. I, I think this is sort of a blanket thing that they're trying to handle and, and, and get done to implement and maybe alleviate some of the patient load and, and trans, unnecessary transports a little bit. I guess maybe they look at it, they get like one percent. You know change it's better than zero percent you know so one thing they we just mentioned before about the uh the patient loading element and now the computer trying to tell you what hospitals might be best will not be as crowded and what might be a better choice to go to and it might not be the closest facility because of the the amount of patients that have been going there by ambulance and we talked a little bit about the MCI aspect of that. And most of the time you don't really, you don't see that unless there is an MCI. When right. they start to, you know, tell you, okay, you, you know, go to this hospital, don't go to this hospital, things like that. Um, the uh, you, you can't bring 10 people
0: who need neurosurgery to one hospital. Yeah. It's just yeah. not going to work.
1: I remember, listen, the one thing that sticks out of my mind is nine eleven. 9-11 when I had people, you know, looking to go to the hospitals of their choice for, you know, complaints of difficulty breathing or complaints of, you know, whatever. And it was like the one day I could say, no, you're going to go where I tell you to go. It was very, very liberating to have that, <laughs> have that power for the day. But, um, thinking but it's I also exercise- disarming
0: to the patient. They had an event happen to them that they had no control over. Right. They try to take a little control. They call an ambulance, and they still have no control.
1: Yeah, yeah, because- exactly. Um, so I was thinking about a little bit about that because of the recent um, fire that they had in, in the Bronx in New oh. York, and the high death toll there and injury, um, you know, toll there. And I mean, first of all, looking at some of the the images and the short video clips that are fl- floating around. Social media and the news, it looks like they did a, a great job in managing the scene and staging and, and all that stuff. But I started to think of, um, you know, how many people on EMS are really comfortable with managing a scene like that? You're like, you're the first person, you're the first crew on a, on a scene like that. How many people are very comfortable with managing that, you know? Um, and I started thinking back on my own experiences of the, being the first unit on the scene for things like that and when I was in new york it was it, it was very new york city very easy because most of the time you had a fire department was there either right before you or along with you, and you had a chief, an assistant chief, a captain, whatever the incident commander yeah exactly more than willing to take over and and start doing the Incident command and everything like that. And that left me just a triage, and that was fine. Um, or, you know, patrol bosses, and, and it was pretty much right behind you on, on, if the call came in as a potential MCI. Um, but then when I got out of New York and working in, in other states, New Jersey and, and upstate New York and North Carolina, stuff like that. It, that wasn't really the case. Most of the time when you were on a scene like that, you were in charge for quite a while. Yeah. You were in command for a while on on that type of situations. And I felt, you know, for myself, I felt really, even though being in New York for 15 years, in New York City for 15, 15, 16 years, now being in other systems and where that MCI element was a little different as far as the amount of resources that were available, Right. Um I found I wasn't comfortable in that, you know. Um and I, I wonder how many people out there are comfortable, let's say if tomorrow they were thrown into you know an MCI and they were instant in command for a good, you know, half hour, forty-five minutes or whatever it may be, until other resources, you know, showed up. You know, for me it took one time for me not to feel comfortable to, you know, go home and start cracking the books and retaking classes. And, and, you know, the, you know, the FEMA class, everybody, those FEMA courses everybody takes that 100, 200,
0: 700, 800. Yeah.
1: You're just taking the, the classes and you're just checking boxes and you're not really getting a lot out of it. And I started thinking back when in my, in firefighter training, when we did a lot of, um, tabletop type exercises to help with scene management. You know, fire departments very any most fire departments are very big on uh, you know, MCIs and incident command, and scene management and stuff like that. And they want pretty much everyone that's on that engine, that ladder, whatever to be able to, you know, be an incident commander if need be. So I that was something that helped me once I did that training and was able to kind of, you know, Translated to the EMS side and and you'll know, be a little more comfortable with it. But like I said, in the, initially, I was lost. And this is after being in EMS for, you know, 16 years, you know. And I just wonder how many people out there are, are comfortable with incident command, you know. And I mean, what do you think? Do you think organizations stress enough training with that? Or is that just the once every two years type Refresher thing where they, you know, bang out some couple of scenarios and you, you, you kind of grin and get through it. Yeah. Well,
0: if you ask me, uh, I'm big into training. I don't think we do enough training in that. Um, I think the, the people that I see in EMS land often have a hard enough time with triage, which is the thing they would do if they were released from being the incident commander. They'd be doing right. triage. Yeah. And and doing triage as opposed to being a triage sector supervisor, you know, is is I think triage is very straightforward, but you know, I teach it all the time. But I, I just want to go back just a little bit on your incident command thing. When now I, I I'm gonna tell you, I don't get to do incident command often. And I love that. And if I am the incident commander for a while, that means that the resources that I need, because I've come with my ambulance. If I'm the right. incident commander, it means I don't have the resources I need. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, it, it's rare that we just have, you know, people who are are just sick or spontaneously hurt without an incident that's an evolving incident that needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I welcome the fire department and the police and the Oh, yeah, these special services that show up then, uh, because
1: you're, you're if they're there not there,
0: I'm all alone. With, you know, what am I gonna do if, there, if there's a fire? I'm gonna throw a liter of saline at the fire. What am I gonna do?
1: Yeah, you know, you sit there. I, I remembered I forget what, what the call was, but I remember I was on one one time and uh, like it was half stuff was happening so fast, and all I'm thinking of in the back of my mind is I'm hearing more sirens coming. I'm like, okay. Hurry it up! Get yeah. here. Just being this ambulance, and we're trying to figure, you know, figure out what's happening and trying to get control of what's happening. And then the the other end of that too is is um, like you said, the triage. The triage stuff. Triage, like it, it is straightforward. My biggest difficulty with that is finding the tags that are probably buried in the ambulance somewhere. The last time somebody somebody used them. Once I find the tags, I'm okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there are some systems that make that really easy. You're not tying knots, you're just pulling pulling little tabs. Right, right. Yeah, the the toe tags that we used to have. I mean, so I, I got into it a little bit before you, but I remember what we had we what we had to do uh in the 70s for this. It was it was ridiculous. Um yeah. Yeah, but, but I, I think we've come away. I, I think being an incident commander, I mean, it sounds gloriful. It's horrifying. I, I have oh, yeah. to believe it's hard. And I, I know it's made some people's careers. I don't I um but I, I remember and w- without mentioning names, I remember um in my meta class, we had a we had a person who ended up being the incident commander in a terrible collapse in Connecticut. They were there was this building that was being built and it was like going to be five, six, seven stories high. And they put these giant slabs of concrete and they pull it up by cables to rapidly create a seven, eight, 10-story structure mm-hmm. that, that while the people were working there, it collapsed. It went from being a 10-story structure to a one-story structure. And the people that were in there were between, between concrete that didn't stop because they were human bodies. You know, right. some people might have been in the stairwell. They had an opportunity to survive. But the people who were the incident commanders, they were not normal after that. They, it was it was hurtful. It's yeah. a hurtful thing. I was, you know, I was at um, Flight 800 way too soon uh, as part of the critical incident um, stress team. And it was horrifying. And the incident commander... Which is, always ends up being the the fire commissioner, the fire chief, whoever is on the scene there. Mm. That's that's not a healthy because the, the decisions that they have to make, the things yeah. that they have to experience, they're not healthy. And while it sounds yeah. glorified, and sometimes they get a chance to make a road show out of it to go to a conference in Vegas to present on how they did, you know, their thing at at Flight 800 or or when 911 yeah. collapsed or this Oklahoma City. It may be even cathartic yeah. for them to talk about it.
1: Uh, the, it's funny you say that because I know that uh, there was a girl um, uh, that was on the ambulance, and her and her partner were the first on scene of a plane crash, uh, <laughs> maybe ten years ago, something like that. And like you said, she was. It was horrifying for her—the type of thing where she, you know, she never really kind of got over that. That you know. Having to be instant command, you know, before the rest of the cavalry got there, you know, um, you feel powerless even yeah. when
0: everybody's there. Yeah, it's it's not an easy situation.
1: Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Ugh. well, I I do encourage people to 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 look for training, like you said, Dave. You know, look for training that can help them with instant command, with triage, with handling MCIs.
0: As I yeah. remember, there's there's a whole bunch of free training available by some of the national um, national organizations, national uh, federal federal organizations that will actually take you, fly you out, train you, take you to a place where they train people on this for mm-hmm. free. They put you up, you get great training, and uh, maybe maybe when this is over, we can list some of those. Uh, resources. Yeah, I'll
1: try to find some, put them in the in the show notes, uh, you know, for people. And I, I, uh, just one final note, I will tell you that you know when when a lot of people tend to get a little frustrated when they are assigned or they're doing the training, you know, with the the simulation type thing where they've got the make believe patients and make believe uh, ER stuff and whatever. And it can get, you know, if you're, if you're on the ambulance and you are doing that sort of uh, that training, you might feel, oh, my God, it's a waste of time. It's freezing out here. It's so, it's so hot out. I'd rather be doing something else. But I'm telling you, once you do it, I think you're going to find you learn a lot from it. And I know that's what happened to me in the past where I would rather be doing chest pain calls and sitting on some make-believe MCI. But as I went through the you know the the uh, the evolutions of the of the training, I found I was I was really getting a lot out of that training. So I encourage people that if you see that in your at your agency and you can volunteer that day to go be part of that training, even if you're not part of the the ambulance and whatnot. You know maybe you're part of the uh make believe patience, you know, take advantage of that stuff. You know, don't uh don't let that opportunity pass you by because it, it could really come in handy down the road. So um and we'll just end I guess we'll end it there, Dave. I think like I said, I encourage people to go ahead and do that and okay. and you know do all that. And I have Ahmed Ahmed in the, in here. I see. He says he has a, he he has a question. Sure. So you can ask away Ahmed, as long as it's nothing that I have to quickly delete. Uh, <laughs> and no Josh, I guess, Dave. He didn't uh no he didn't pop up today. So you know.
0: Yeah. Let's see what he has to say here. Or uh
1: at give least him a second is... before we end up. So Ahmed, you have a question, you'd be more happy How, to to
0: how can you control stress during providing care to a patient?
1: Yeah, I, so. I guess experience is going to be. He's as a new paramedic, so I guess experience is going to be your biggest best friend to start trying to lower that. And I think knowledge is going to be your best friend too. You know, knowing what you're doing, understanding why you're doing it, is going to be a lot less stressful for you going into actual patient care. You know, when you're going from the student and you've got the training officer with you, you have the clinical, you know, um, rotation person that you're with, you know, the FTOs and stuff like that, you know, and they're not there anymore. And is this you and an EMT or you and a, another medic? It can, well, it Jim, can be
0: Jim, some, I, I, I need to say this because I see this in a, in different systems and certainly one of the systems that I, I know well, uh, we often hire uh, within the system of the county, they hire paramedics. Fresh out of class, their card is still wet. Uh-huh. Um, they hire them, they put them in a first responder car, and their partner is the radio. Uh-huh. And they they, off, they don't even have the opportunity to learn from a senior medic. One of the things that in the New York City system that we, where you came from, when when you were the new medic, you rode, a, I, I'm thinking, a couple of weeks as the third medic on the oh, yeah. ambulance. All right. So you're the third medic and you got good or bad. You know, if if they were good, they counseled you. They advised you. They supported you. Um, they uh, when when you went to do something, if you're going to do an intubation, your first few intubations in the back of the ambulance there or mm-hmm. on the scene, they would the, you turned around and they had a seven and a half and an eight ready to go for you. And you, you opened up the airway and you realized, oh, my God, I need suction. And they were there for you. And they right. were there. And you were riding three medics. And then after your whatever the minimum amount of time was, you became the second medic on a, on an ambulance for you. And, right. and, and we can argue about how good that system is. And, and it comes up all the time. But when you're the second medic. If your partner didn't get out of the same class you did, if they got out five years earlier, maybe you got five years of experience or 20 years of experience, or God forbid you ride with me, um, four decades of experience, um, good or bad, good or bad. Um, some people relive their first year, 40 years, and some people just grow you know, every time. But at least you got somebody else there the the folks we're hiring now are brand new, and they're riding alone, and they don't even get to discuss the call with somebody else who was there. Yeah, because they're the only medic on the call. And I see, uh, I, I the stress when I want to provide care to a patient. It it is it is hard. It needs to be so. So Ahmed says that. Uh, I feel like stress. When I wanna provide care to a patient, like I can't focus on examination steps, do I have advice? You know, it's, it, it, hopefully uh, you got a lot of advice and a lot of practices that as you went through med school and I and I presume you did. And uh, you know, when, when people say you won't rise to the occasion when things get bad, you will default to your level of training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where we are. Um, I I would suggest to a person who's finding it very stressful that they seek additional training. And when I say additional training, it could be to ride on tours with other people. It could be maybe go to the ER if you're affiliated with an ER that would let you have the guidance of of the doctors and nurses and PAs and NPs and respiratory therapists who are there so so that you can practice your skill. Listen, you're brand new. If you're brand new, I think assessment is the toughest, you know, intubation. That's not the toughest skill. We do it's not the skills
1: as much as it is the interaction and, and the, and, the assessment and integration, but and in what, what it is you have to do, what, what, what's the most appropriate when it comes to the treatment the transport and all that. And, and like you said, if you don't have another medic there with you, that's experienced to kind of guide you or to give you feedback afterwards, it's hard to gain that confidence.
0: I wanna hit one more spot and it may help Ahmed. Uh, After being a paramedic, whether or not you took any of this training during your class, it's different now that you're a paramedic. There are great courses, great courses, um, alphabet classes, AMLS, the advanced medical life support class. You will go through 10, 12, 15 scenarios Where you will get to think diversely about your assessment and the integration of that into care, PHTLS, pre hospital trauma life support, the difficult airway class, which is not an AEMT class, just a great class. And again, looking at PALs, find the class or or ACLS for experience provider, find the classes that aren't aimed at getting you the credential in the minimal amount of time that expand that expand on the scenarios that have you, have you go through the scenario. Oh, you did a good job on that. Okay. That's not enough. If you did a good job on it, let's talk about why you did a good job on it. Let's, let's talk critically about what you did do, what you could have done, how that might not have been as bad or or might've been better or, or, or not, you know, it's just consider the options, discuss your thoughts, as a paramedic, which is different than as a student in the class.
1: Yeah, so I, think that, I, yeah I think you're 100% right. That dynamic and in, in how you can view things is a little different. Once you're an actual paramedic, you've got your certification, you've passed all your exams, things like that. When you take these classes, you can look at it from a different lens. And I think get more out of it, get more feedback, better feedback by asking better questions as yeah. well. You know, so I think it all kind of adds up and and and, and a lot of it, like Ahmed, a lot of it's going to be time and experience and seeking out, you know, people that have been doing it, you know, and getting them to, you know, give you a little guidance, a little feedback on what you're doing. It might be that you might be stressful, but you might be doing things just fine. And, you know, the stress you're feeling is sort of maybe all internal. It's not really... Translate into the care you're giving, you know. And, so have somebody look at what you're doing, so you can get some feedback on what your your you know your patient care is.
0: So much of what we do is stressful. It's stressful to have people who are dying about you, or people who are experiencing events that can leave them profoundly disabled, and it's stressful to deal with their loved ones who are watching this happen. And yeah. I, I can tell you, I, I I know I know physicians that say to me that the stress of the job, first of all, their number one stress is the business of being a physician. That that's horrifying going for reimbursement and coding and all of that. That's horrifying for them. But many of them tell me, listen, I'm dealing, I'm making life and death decisions on people and it scares the hell out of me. And number one, I'm glad it scares them. Uh, and, and if it's not stressful to make life and death decisions, maybe you're in the wrong business. I mean, at some yeah. point we should be, be good easy. at things really good at things that it's easier and we're more knowledgeable and i think that will come with a tincture of time ahmed but uh yeah. i think our training goes a long way and the stress of a uh, of a pediatric resuscitation will never go away for me never
1: yeah that's it's true it's true and like you said there i think if if you're not feeling that stress for the responsibility you have with some patients, you know, it, it it's 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 the job. It it's what the job is and you should be feeling that stress when you c encounter some of these patients. You know, we, we it's normal to
0: feel stress in stressful
1: situations. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be an MCI. It could just be that one patient that is got ten thousand different things going on at once and you're trying to figure out which one to, you know, Manage first, but don't forget that ABCs, B, C, A, B, A, B, C. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, and managing stress is, is something that we can, we can learn. There are procedures. I don't mean just sitting there contemplating, you know. Uh, you know, not, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about transcendental meditation, which, which is not a bad thing either. But uh, there are ways to manage stress. A lot of them involve colleagues. A lot of them may involve strategies, behaviors that you have. Um yeah. it needs oh, yeah. to be explored and there are courses in it. There is advice for it. Um, I'll just a, a real quick one is the PTEP class, psychological trauma in EMS patients, which has a component dedicated to the stress of EMS providers. And if you didn't know this, Ahmed, the, the number of EMS providers uh who are depressed or contemplating suicide or succeeding at suicide is 10 times higher than the the regular population. So you're not alone. If you're feeling stressed, there is a ton of stress. And if you need help, there are resources for that too. And hopefully your employer can help. And if you really need help, shoot us a note. If you're if you urgently need help. Yeah. Not, we're not going to walk away. You just shoot us a note. You got us. Exactly. Ah,
1: history yeah, takers.
0: <laughs> AMLS. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Time. All right, Jay, let's end it there because my battery's almost dead. and i don't want to just zone out here so all right um everyone thanks for joining ahmed thanks for your questions people thanks for liking be sure to go ahead and like the uh the show i really appreciate it um and we'll just end it there all right so as always i am jim hoffman and i'm dave brenner stay safe